Let us open our Bibles to Romans chapter 9, where the Lord has led us for the last couple of years. For many of the sermons and much of the preaching, and we're thankful for this epistle to the Romans, which is called the Gospel of God. There be many Gospels in the world. The Apostle Paul warned the Corinthians that there was another Jesus, another Gospel, and another Spirit. And he was afraid that they were so weak that if someone came preaching another Jesus or another Gospel or bringing another Spirit, they might well bear with him. And the point being that when there is a gospel different than what Paul taught, it's to be rejected and the man preaching it's to be rejected. But we come to Romans chapter 9. We just sang a song called Electing Grace. And we are dealing with the subject of election in this chapter. And it is the most complete and the weightiest and the most definitive statements of God's election that we have in the Bible. Because... It's a chapter that shows both sides. Those he did elect and those he did not elect. Which we use the term reprobation as the opposite of election. Reprobation means rejection. A reprobate, and it is a Bible word, is one rejected. And someone that is elect is one that's been chosen. That's when we elect a president, we choose a president. And by not voting for the others, the nation as a whole rejects them from the office. It's sort of a reprobation by the part of the electorate. But when we come to Romans chapter 9, and we are now to a single sentence that is in verses 22 through 24. And because this is the last sentence of this part of the chapter, give me a moment to review. Because when we come back in a few Sundays from now and take up with verse 25, it is going to shift from including us Gentiles to being directed more particularly to the Jews. And the Apostle is going to quote from a couple of places in Hosea and from the book of Isaiah in showing God's election among the Jews, which is what he started the chapter with. Let's go back and remember that in Romans chapter 8, remember there's great divisions in Romans. If you take the 16 chapters of Romans, the first division is at the end of chapter 11, before we start out with chapter 12. And we we memorize the first two verses of chapter 12 because they say, Therefore, that's a logical conclusion from 11 chapters, Therefore I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. And it goes on to describe what that living sacrifice is. I beseech you by the mercies of God. The first 11 chapters of Romans are the mercies of God. And so the apostle, in the last five chapters, is going to teach us how we ought to live. But the first 11 chapters are what God has done for us. And he beseeches us, by God's mercies, to live a certain way in those last five chapters. That's the doctrinal and the practical division of the 16 chapters of Romans. But within those first 11 chapters, we have the first eight, and then we have three that are more directly sent to Israel, because Paul is talking about Israel. And he starts off Romans 9, describing Israel, his kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, and so forth. And then that will end with an amen at the end of chapter 11, and we'll start up the five practical chapters of the epistle. It's a common method of Paul to present the doctrine, and then to present the effect, what we ought to be doing because of what God's done for us. I mean, some of the epistles are very definite in that division. They will actually end the first half with an amen. 
Like Ephesians chapter 3 ends with an amen, and then chapter 4 starts out with us walking according to the vocation wherewith we've been called. You know, since God's done all this, this is how we ought to walk. But in Romans, when we look back at chapter 8, and a verse that we're all familiar with, and we've most of us have memorized, the 28th verse, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. And so the apostle introduces the purpose of God, and in the next 10 verses, or 11 verses, he describes that purpose this way. He calls it predestination in that 30th verse and 29th verse. In verse 33, he calls it the election. Who shall anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Now in in chapter 8, he's addressing Jews and Gentiles together, the body of believers that was in the city of Rome. But here's where God's purpose in calling some, and they're the ones that love God. You would never love God if God had not first loved you. The wicked, it says of them in Psalm 10.4, God is not in all their thoughts. They go through an entire lifetime, morning to evening, without any thought of God. You know, if they're sitting in a religion class at Greenville Tech, that does not count because they are not thinking about God in a valuable, worshipful, obedient, humble, fearful way. That's not what he's talking about. They never think about obeying God. And we would be the same if it hadn't been for God's mercy. And so his purpose for knowing us was to predestinate us, to justify us, to call us, and he's going to glorify us. And so certain is our glorification in heaven, it's in the past tense in your Bible. Romans chapter 8 and verse 30 tells us at the very end of that verse, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now see, you can understand that when you read the 8th chapter of Romans, because the 4th chapter of Romans already gave you an illustration of God overruling verb tenses because of his power to do so. In Romans chapter 4, The Apostle Paul quotes from the book of Genesis where God told Abraham, I have made thee a father of many nations when Abraham didn't even have a son. And Paul said of God, he is able to call those things which be not as though they were because when God has a purpose to do something, it's as good as done. And when God has a purpose to glorify us, and this is part of today's, because he has afore prepared some vessels of mercy for glory. That's glorification. Our glorification is so sure he can use the past tense, though we shall not be glorified, nor has anyone been glorified, except the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We shall be glorified body, soul, and spirit in the presence of the Lord and his holy angels forever and ever. There's election and predestination. If God delivered up his son for us, he's going to give us everything else. Because if he gave the greatest, this is just logical reasoning. It's it's reasoning from the greater to the lesser. If he gave his son, he's certainly going to give us everything else we need. We're never going to be separated from the love of God, according to the last couple of verses of this eighth chapter. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God. And he lists a number of things which is in Christ Jesus our Lord where we were chosen before the world began as God's elect. Ephesians chapter 1, 2 Timothy 1, tell us those things. We come to Romans 9. Now in Romans 9, the apostle tells how much he loved his nation in the first five verses. In the sixth verse, he introduces something that's going to be horrible to a Jew. It's going to shock them. And that's why he took five verses to show his affection 
for his nation so that they would hear him. In the sixth verse, in the last half of that verse, he said, For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Oh, so God has two Israels. One has the national privileges of being citizens of his state or nation, and the other are truly his children. See, that goes on to say, these are not the children of God. There's two Israels. There's a national Israel, and it doesn't mean a thing. Those are people that were born to the commonwealth of Israel, were circumcised the eighth day if they were male, but it didn't mean a thing before God. They were just, they just got some of the external blessings and privileges of being part of God's nation on earth. But within that nation was a smaller subset of spiritual elect Israel. And the apostle is laying this on the Jewish portion of his audience. For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Now the Jews thought because they were the children of Abraham, they were automatically going to heaven. That's what Jesus Christ and the apostles had to deal with from Matthew 1 all the way through the epistles of the New Testament. The entire book of Galatians is written to deal with that heresy. The council of the city of Jerusalem in Acts 15 to deal with that heresy. The apostle had to deal with it over and over. They were called Jewish legalists. If you weren't a Jew, and if you weren't a Gentile that got circumcised and kept the law of Moses like a Jew, you couldn't go to heaven. But the apostles going back and saying, if you're part of the nation, that doesn't prove anything. They are not all Israel which are of Israel. There's an election within Israel that is truly God's people. He states the doctrine in that clause, the second clause of verse 6. Then he explains it looking at Abraham. Abraham had eight sons. Most people think he had two. He had Isaac and Ishmael, but he had eight because he had a third wife that most people don't remember. Her her name was Keturah, and he had six sons by her after Hagar was gone and Sarah had died. Let me tell you, when God revives a man, it lasts a long time, more than a few hours because you went to milestone or anywhere else and got Pfizer's popular drug. Sorry for chasing that little rabbit, but I want you to glory in God. Remember, Abraham was dead reproductively and he couldn't have a son through Sarah. Sarah was dead reproductively. She couldn't bear a son. And when he was a 100 years old, God revived Abraham and God revived 90-year-old Sarah and they had Isaac. But Abraham lived another 75 years, brethren. He He married after Sarah died. 47 years later, he married again and had six sons. Now, how's that? I give all the glory to God. Verses 7, 8, and 9 are about Abraham and Sarah and their son Isaac. That though there were eight sons, only one of them was chosen by God to be a son of God. The father of Islam is Ishmael. And our Bibles tell us right here that he was rejected. And Galatians chapter 4 at length tells us that he and his mother were rejected. They shall not be heirs with the son of the free woman, which was Isaac. So right there in verses 7 through 9, look at look at how verse 7 starts. Neither, because they are the seed of Abraham. See, that's what all the Jews thought. Because we're the seed of Abraham or his descendants, we're saved. But here's what the apostles telling them. Neither, because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Out of those eight sons, only one son was God's chosen son, Only one son was the son of promise. Only one son was a child of God. Look at verse 8. That is, here's the explanation if you didn't get it. They which are the children of the flesh, Abraham and Hagar, Abraham and Keturah, those were just children of the flesh. These are not the children of God. 
but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son, not Hagar, not Keturah. So after stating they are not all Israel which are of Israel, the first illustration the Apostle Paul gives, and a Jew would know all this history intimately, is out of the eight sons of Abraham, one was chosen, his name was Isaac. Then, because that involved three different women, the Apostle takes a tighter argument, and that is the twins of Rebekah, the wife of Isaac. And that's in verses 10 down through 13. Rebekah had twins by Isaac, fathered by one man in the womb of one woman. This is different than three different women. But those twins, God said of the one, I hate Esau, the father of the Edomites. His name was Edom, as well as Esau. And I love Jacob. Wow. This is hard doctrine. You say, there's nothing hard in the Bible. Well, then read John chapter 6 where the disciples came to Jesus and said, don't you know this is a hard saying? What was he saying in John chapter 6? Two things. No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And two, except ye eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of God, you don't have eternal life. Now that's hard doctrine. And Roman Catholics just go bang and trip right over that. And there's 1.1 billion of them this morning. Well, only 300 million will go to Mass on a Sunday. But when they go to Mass, they're going to take that little wafer on their tongue and they're going to believe and be told that that is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ because of John chapter 6. That's hard doctrine. It trips up 1.1 billion and there's only oh, 30 or 40, 70 million Christians in the world out of 2 billion that understand it. Hard doctrine. This is hard doctrine right here. They are not all Israel which are of Israel. So the chosen nation of God is narrowed down to a subset of his elect. The eight sons of Abraham are narrowed down to Isaac. The two twins of Rebekah are narrowed down to Jacob. The obvious response of men is going to be to balk. And that is where we've been the last number of weeks in verses 14 through 24. So let me read that passage to you. And the apostle, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to raise the objections that pop up immediately in our own hearts and minds. The, the, The objections of our flesh. The objections of our natural reasoning are going to pop up. Now, wait a minute. That isn't fair. Jacob and Esau haven't, hadn't done any evil. Look at verse 11. It's in parentheses, meaning it's additional explanatory material given to you by the Holy Spirit. Verse 11 of Romans 9, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It is God that calls a man to a certain office or vocation or purpose in life. And here was the children of God. He called Jacob and he didn't call Esau. And it's the purpose of God according to election. Before they had done anything, God had already purposed how he was going to use Esau and how he was going to use Jacob. So up come these questions. And if you ever try to talk to someone about election, these questions come up. But here are the answers, and this is how we ought to answer them. And this is how God answers us. And I have just taken so long in review that I hope we can just read through this and you'll remember the good things we learned there. Because the Apostle's very good, because he's inspired, at putting our questions, posing our questions for us, and then answering them. See, the Bible isn't a give-and-take dialogue. It might be nice if it was that way, but the Holy Spirit improved on that. 
by putting the questions in there in the text already. So here we go with the first questions that pop up after you read that about Jacob and Esau. Verse 14, What shall we say then? What shall we say after I've told you about an election within Israel, that they are not all Israel which are of Israel? After I've told you one son out of eight of Abraham, after I've told you about one twin out of two, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Is there anything done wrong in what we've just read about? God forbid. No way, not a chance. God forbid. And here's how he'll prove it. He'll just quote scripture. And that's what we ought to always do. Don't try to reason out election. You can't. Don't try to rationalize election. You can't. Just go by revelation. What has God revealed to us? And so the apostles just says, God forbid. That is impossible for God to be unfair. And here's how I'll prove it. I'll quote scripture. Verse 15, for he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He quotes a statement that mercy and compassion from God, like Jacob got, like Isaac got, is what we just sang in that song, God's whim, God's will. It's God's will. Four times stated there, I will. Everybody wants to bark against that today. Everybody wants to make it the sinner's will. Everybody wants to make it the human will. They want to talk about the human spirit. I'm going to tell you about a will that's powerful and it governs the universe and it's the will of God. And it's the will that we ought to always submit ourselves to. If the Lord will, James chapter 4 exhorts us, we shall live and do this or that. You're not going to do anything if it's not the will of God. So four times, I will... Have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And then the apostle draws his inspired conclusion. So then, if verse 15 is true, so then it is not of him that willeth. It's not of you willing. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth. It is not a human decision, and it is not human effort, but of God that showeth mercy. Mercy comes from the free grace and mercy of a God whom we've offended and the entire race are rebels that deserve eternal torment. If God were fair, we would all be in hell. If God were just, we sang it in that song, thank you brother, we would all be in hell. Thankfully, God isn't fair. He's gracious and merciful. But like we sang in that song, that's the third time I've referred to it. Like we sang in that song, if only one person were saved, it would show his love because his love would have overruled his justice. Is God unrighteous? We ask. Paul says, God forbid. Mercy is by the will of God and compassion is by the will of God and he can give it to whomsoever he chooses. And it is so true that it's not of him that willeth nor of him that runneth but of God that showeth mercy. That 16th verse. Okay, so he's answered the question, is God fair? Is God wrong? Is God bad? Is God evil? Is there unrighteousness with God? No way. Not at all. He tells us in the Bible that he grants his mercy and compassion to whomsoever he will. If you think you have a right to mercy, it is no longer mercy. Mercy, by definition, you have no right to. Mercy is when someone has a right over you. 
and you are under their authority and power, and you are guilty that they then do not apply to you or do not execute against you what you deserve. That's what mercy is. You never have a right to mercy. Mercy means you've broken the law and you ought to be condemned. But in some way, pardon is found for you. And we know how that pardon was found through the Lord Jesus Christ. After that explanation, he then illustrates it. Look, for the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. And that's why earlier this morning, I mentioned all the aspects of Pharaoh from conception to the throne of Egypt, all that process of elevating him to the pinnacle of power of the greatest nation on earth. We are told why. For God to get himself a name and for God to show God's power in destroying the mightiest man on earth and the haughtiest man. Do you remember when Moses first met Pharaoh? The Lord says to let my people go. Do you know what Pharaoh responded with? Do you remember? These are what I call famous last words. They're like, they're like the man in Liverpool, England in 1912 that said even God couldn't sink that ship as the Titanic set sail for America. I wouldn't want to be on a ship where anybody said even God couldn't sink that one. That's a dangerous ship. Do you know what Pharaoh said? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Those are famous last words. Who is the Lord? You know what he met the Lord? Well, he met the Lord in ten plagues. And the ten plagues were horrible, but he didn't learn the lesson then because God had already said he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Before Moses ever got into Egypt to speak the first time with Pharaoh, God told Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart to get me a name over Pharaoh. Pharaoh took his army down into the midst of the Red Sea after ten plagues. Would you do it? If you'd had ten plagues in your life, would you take your army down into a seabed with the water piled up like jello on both sides? Your horses wouldn't want to go. Would you go? God had hardened his heart. And he met the Lord Jehovah in the midst of the Red Sea. Because the Lord Jehovah just didn't drown him. He took the wheels off his chariots and he drove his chariot furiously. The Egyptians got very nervous when the wheels came off. And they're on their axles on the bed of the Red Sea. And that water was so high on both sides. Then he met the Lord. I love, look at the Word of God. It tells us. Say it's not fair. Listen. There's a whole race of beings so much greater than Pharaoh or you that God has reserved in everlasting chains to eternal torment. The devil and his angels. They are far more glorious than anyone in this room or all of us combined. And they are reserved in chains under the great God. And he rightfully and righteously judges them so. But notice what the Bible said about this illustration of hardening about Pharaoh. God is going to have his name declared throughout all the earth. And look what we're doing in the year 2011, almost with 2012 upon us. We're still talking about Pharaoh, aren't we? Every Bible story book has a picture of the... I can still... Paul, can you still see it in your mind? Yes, I knew he would. I can still see that picture in learning about Pharaoh in the Red Sea as a little boy. Still being declared, God is great. And we read about it in Psalm 76. He is terrible to the kings of the earth. That was not a nice way to live the last part of your life. Ten plagues and then drown in the Red Sea. 
and then have Miriam take up a timbrel on the other shore and dance and make up a song, take up a song written by Moses about God being glorified by those waterlogged carcasses that were floating up on the shore because God had delivered the slaves out of Egypt with the wealth of Egypt in their pockets to build him a tabernacle in the land of Canaan. All glory to the God of heaven. So verse 18 says, in repetition, after verse 16 and 15, it says, therefore, therefore means a conclusion. Therefore, we can draw a conclusion. Hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy? Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, and whom he will he hardeneth? Pharaoh. God's will hardens men. God's will shows mercy and compassion on men. Next question that pops up from a natural man's thinking. Thou wilt say then unto me, see here's the next question, then, thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? If Pharaoh ended up doing the will of God by being hardened and by taking his army down to the midst of the Red Sea, how can God find him at fault? Since God's will was accomplished by Pharaoh's rebellion. There's part of us that says that's a good question. I want a good answer. Do you know what God tells us? Verse 20. Nay, but, O man, no way should you talk that way. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? No, that's impossible. And in case you didn't get it from that 20, 20th verse, he then adds verse 21, Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? The same potter at a spinning wheel with clay can take from the same bucket of clay and make a toilet, a chamber pot, and he can make a fine porcelain or pot, a dish of pottery for the china cabinet. One of honor and one of dishonor. Hath not the potter that power? We would grant the potter that right and that authority to do whatever he wants to with clay. He can make something beautiful. He can make something ugly. He can make something to destroy. He can make something to keep as a cherished vessel. He can make something that will have a dishonorable use like a chamber pot. Or he can make something that will have an honorable use like a pitcher for milk. And we would grant the potter that. We, because we are rebellious, proud, arrogant clay, say God doesn't have that right to do that with us. The fact is that there is a greater difference between God and us than there is between a potter and clay. If we would ever get our priorities straightened out, we are clay. God took a little bit of dust of the earth and breathed into the nostrils the breath of life and Adam became a living soul. And if you've ever been near a dead person, and we've had one recently, my mother turned to clay in a minute of time. It was so different to kiss her forehead. We are clay. This is the Word of God. And I love this God, and I love Him for revealing Himself to me, and I'm thankful that He gave me life that I might know Him. If He had never given me existence, I wouldn't know Him. And I'm able to say with the song we sang earlier, that if he sent my soul to hell, his righteous law approves it well, but I thank God 
He's not going to because we haven't finished the passage. But that's what, look at the two questions. The first question, it's unfair, it's not right, it's bad. God forbid. Second question, that isn't right to hold Pharaoh responsible when it fulfilled the will of God. Who are you? You don't even have the right to ask a question about God. That's what the Bible does. It shuts us up as men and forces us to fall on our face or to put our head down like Luke chapter 18 describes the publican and beat our breasts and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because we have no claim on mercy. It's just a begging. With the potter and the clay fresh in your mind, because it's verse 21, here's this last sentence we're dealing with. And here is election and reprobation declared in the weightiest verse in the Bible. What if God, you that I've told to not answer against God, you that I've told are but men, but clay, and you don't have a right to question your maker and the way he forms you, if you don't understand what I've just said about a vessel of honor and a vessel of dishonor, let me explain it for you. It's, it's the Holy Spirit leading us into this 22nd verse and this one long sentence down through 24. What if God, willing to show His wrath, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. Even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. One sentence telling us so many things. In the 22nd verse from last Sunday, what if God, and this is a powerful declaration of God. This is not a hypothetical question. It's in the form of a question because he's been asking questions because you don't have a right. And now it's God daring you to think of any excuse or explanation or opposition to what he does. What if I do this? I'm the potter. You're the clay. You don't have a right to question it and you can't stop it. Nebuchadnezzar learned that. You know, when we read Daniel chapter 4, that whole testimony of Nebuchadnezzar, when he got to the end of his days, after his seven years as being like an ox out eating grass, he said that he learned something in his graduate school of the Lord's choice. He learned that he, the God of heaven, doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? the greatest man that ever lived on this planet, as far as political power, God reduced him to an ox. And that man lifted up his eyes to heaven and said that God is able to raise up over the kingdoms of men, the basest of men, referring to himself. What a testimony. And it's, it's identical with what we're reading right here. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering. He waited and he waited for all of them to be born and for all of them to sin and do all the wicked things that they were going to do in their lives. They are vessels of wrath. The vessel is from the Potter verse. It's verse 21. They are a vessel of wrath. They're a vessel made to be destroyed. And it goes on to tell you that in case you didn't get it from the word vessel of wrath. 
vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. They were made. Fitted is describing the potter's work. He's there on the spinning wheel making something. He's making vessels of wrath, something that is dishonorable, as verse 21 would describe it. Something that's to be destroyed. Something that's not for a noble end. And brethren, when we look at the clay, and I'll only say this briefly because it's not included here. You've got to go elsewhere in the Bible to get it, but I'll say it briefly here, as I have been, to give the jury a few little comments as we sit here and read and learn this passage of Scripture. It's one lump. But what is that lump of humanity? It is rebellious, wicked, profane enemies of God. We all deserve to go to hell. It is amazing to me that people get upset that God didn't save everyone when they ought to get worked up for the character of God. Why did He save anyone? You wouldn't have. If you had been God, with God's character and God's nature, and two little clay creatures down in Eden, in a perfect paradise, had stood up on their hind legs and defied you the way they did, I know what you would do. You'd have a new universe the next day. They turned to be his enemies. They blamed the creation. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the devil. He had given them one little commandment to keep. What an easy life in paradise. Do you know they could have eaten from the tree of life all the time and we would never die? He gave them everything. Man had his choice. And God picked the best of us, Adam. And Adam condemned us all, like Romans chapter 5 has taught us very plainly that we all die because of Adam, and we all die because of our own sins. But even if you didn't sin, you would still die because you're connected to Adam by human generation, and God made a covenant with the first Adam. But thankfully, God made a covenant with the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that it says, For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. One man disobeyed, many became sinners. Romans 5.19 We call that federal headship, the doctrine of representation, original sin, whatever you want to call it. One man sinned, we all, one man disobeyed, all became sinners. For as by one man, for as by one that sinned, for by one that disobeyed, Romans 5.19, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. And the Lord Jesus Christ was given as our covenant head to obey the perfect will of God for his entire life, which he did, and to lay down his life, a sacrifice for us, which he did. And so by one man's obedience, we are made righteous. What a glorious text. The first and the second Adam. Romans chapter 9, verse 22, describes reprobation. What if God had vessels of wrath fitted to destruction that he endured for a long time with much long-suffering, And the purpose for their existence was to show his wrath and to make his power known. It's like Pharaoh. Remember we're told, Pharaoh, I've raised you up for this purpose because I want to show my power in destroying the greatest man on earth and his army. And I want my name to be declared throughout the earth because of what I did to you. That's what God told Pharaoh through Moses in Exodus 9. And that's what we just read here in verse 17. Now, similar to that, As we progress away from that illustration, we come to salvation. What if God, and this is a declaration about what God does do, what if he has vessels of wrath? He's made vessels from the clay of humanity to be destroyed, to make his wrath and his power known. 
What if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, did that? And that's where we've been so far. But brethren, there's a coordinating conjunction and that starts off the 23rd verse, for which we ought to be very, very thankful and be excited about this morning, that there is another group. There's vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor in verse 21. The vessels of dishonor are equated to the vessels of wrath, or the children of wrath, as he Ephesians would describe them, that will be destroyed. We all should be in that category. We all should be in that category. If God were just just, and if God were just righteous, and if God were just holy, we would all be in that category. But God wants to display something else. What is it? And that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy which He had afore prepared unto glory. The preparation is back to the language of the potter. The potter fitted some to destruction. The the potter prepared some for glory. Glorious use. Do you know where you're going to be for heaven? Around the throne of God. Do you know what you're going to do for eternity? What I tried to write you yesterday in the preparatory email. You're going to praise Him. You're going to give God glory. You're going to show and tell Him about what great things He's done for your soul to save you against all odds, against all of His justice, against all of His holiness. He devised an incredibly prudent plan of infinite wisdom to send His own Son to be a substitute for your sins so that you can be in heaven with Him forever. This is the doctrine of salvation. And this is this is taking it into the the recesses of the eternal mind of God. These are His purposes of why He does things the way He's done. Why it isn't universal salvation. Why it isn't universal condemnation. Why some are passed over and reprobated, rejected. And why some are saved. We all deserve to be rejected. None of us deserve to be saved. He shows His glory in saving us. And... What a wonderful coordinating conjunction telling us that though there is something in verse 22, those rejected vessels, in verse 23 there are accepted vessels and they're vessels of mercy. Not vessels of wrath because those vessels in verse 22 are going to get God's wrath upon them. And the torment of God's wrath upon them will ascend up into heaven forever and ever. But then in verse 23 it's vessels of mercy. Those vessels, those things that God made, those persons that God made, because election and reprobation is very personal, as it says in the first two words of the 24th verse, even us. It's describing persons. Vessels of mercy. Where does God's mercy come from? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Verse 15. Verse 18. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy. They're vessels of mercy. God chose I'm going to show some mercy on some vessels. One point before we break. It won't be a short one. Sorry. But one point. And that he might make known. I only know one way to preach. I'm not a storyteller. I don't know how to tell stories. The Bible tells me how to preach in Nehemiah chapter 8 when it says... And they read in the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused the people to understand the reading. That's all I know how to do. Read the verses and give the sense of what it means so that you and I together can understand the reading of God's Word. It's Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8. I'm thankful for that text. 
and that he might make known. Jehovah, our God, is infinitely perfect in and of himself without you or me. Jehovah, our God, is infinitely happy in himself without you or without me. He is I am that I am. I am self-sufficient, independent, immortal, eternal, without a creator, without a sustainer, without a preserver, and without anyone adding anything to me. I am that I am. What a name. Does that sound better than Allah? Does that sound better than Vishnu, Brahma, the Great Spirit, Buddha? Thank you, Lord. We have a God named Jehovah. He's not the moon god of the Arabians that Islam worships. You all know what they put at the top of every mosque. It's the picture of their god. If you were born in Arabia, you'd like the moon too because it's cooler at night. You say you're doing disrespect to Allah. Thank you. I'm glad you got the point. I love Jehovah. And you know, when you hear our president say something like we're, we're all worshiping the same god, I hope you know there isn't even a close connection. They're not cousins. Because Jehovah wrote eight chapters in the Bible from Isaiah 41 to Isaiah 48. Eight chapters where he said he looked to see if there were any other gods. And he found none. (laughs) And his name is Jealous. Because he will not give his glory to another. He created that little moon as the lesser light to rule the night. Yes. Don't forget that crescent moon at the top of every one of those houses of worship of the followers of Ishmael. This text tells us that God's people came through Isaac. Though God is infinitely happy and infinitely perfect in and of himself, his perfections don't bring him any external glory, honor, or praise without creatures to provide it for him. So even though he is I am that I am, I am that I am, chose to create creatures that would praise Him. And we will praise Him one way or another. Did you notice in verse 22, some of His creatures called men are going to show His wrath and His power. There's other creatures, men, us, as verse 24 tells us. In verse 23, they're going to show His glory. The same is true of the angels. The angels that sinned with the devil, that sinned with Lucifer, the anointed cherub of God that fell from his exalted position as the chief of all the angelic host, those angels are reserved in everlasting chains for eternal torment. The other angels were kept by God from following the devil, and they are called the elect angels in the Bible and the holy angels because they're kept in their original holiness. So in those two categories, he's showing an election of of preserving those angels, and these will be tormented forever, even though they're far greater than we are in, in glory and might. But now with mankind, he's done something different. He let us all fall. And from one lump of fallen humanity, he pulled some men out of that for the praise of his the riches of his glory, that he might make it known. This I just want one point, that he might make it known. God created not for you. And God didn't create because of you. And God didn't save you for you. And God didn't save you because of you. God created you and God saved you both 
because of Him and for Him. Never forget that. It will help sort things out in the Bible. God did not save men because He looked at fallen man and felt sorry for men going to hell. Never crossed His mind. He saw this... Listen. Men would never have fallen if God did not want them to fall when He created the world. If God did not want Adam and Eve to fall, He would have put the cherubim up, the flaming cherubim, before they fell to keep the way of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that they couldn't have touched it and so that the devil couldn't have got access to the Garden of Eden. Come on. It is all a divine drama to show His glory. I am that I am created everything to reveal various aspects of His perfect, glorious, holy nature. This is why the universe exists. For Him. Proverbs 16.4, the Lord hath made all things for Himself. You say, well, how far does that go? Okay, He'll answer it in the second half. Yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. That's Proverbs 16.4, one of the fundamental verses of understanding why God created and where evil came from and why it exists in the world. Revelation 4.11, Thou art worthy to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. So I want you to understand these words that we're reading. I've tried to read them distinctly, and I want to give you the sense. And that He might make known. God has created from that clay two kinds of, Two portions, two segments of humanity to show His wrath and His power in one and to show the riches of His glory in another. But I want you to understand that God wants to make known things. Remember Pharaoh, there in verse 17, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared. Notice, God creates and does things providentially in the lives of men for Himself. Pharaoh's an example right here in context. In 1 Timothy 1.16, the Apostle Paul said that God showed great long-suffering and mercy toward him to be a pattern for everyone that would believe on Jesus Christ after him, that if God could save Saul of Tarsus, he can save even me. Saul of Tarsus was a killer of Christians, but God had mercy on Saul, and if God could save Saul, he can save me. It was to make his mercy known. This is a stated purpose of redemption. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, just a few more moments. Ephesians chapter 1, the point being, those words that start verse 23, and that He might make known. Let's establish that God is doing things, and especially in salvation, to make known traits, virtues, aspects of His glorious nature. We have never, we cannot even imagine a being like Jehovah. And he reveals himself to these, to us in these overwhelming, staggering ways. I mean, we read the passage and we have questions pop up about unrighteousness and how can he hold Pharaoh guilty because it's so great, but he's showing his sovereign power. You want to talk about power and authority? See, we don't have any. Our president doesn't have any. He's got an answer on why he's vacations four months of the year. You know, everybody picks on him. It's not like Nebuchadnezzar. Do you think you, do you think you could have a little editorial in a newspaper in Babylon about Nebuchadnezzar? They had real authority back then. We have none. It's neutered our whole nation. It's neutered so many fathers. It's neutered so many bosses. It's neutered the military. Not to have the authority that they once had. 
Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verse 6. We're talking about making stuff, making things about God known. This is why He saved men. Ephesians 1, 6. To the praise of the glory of His grace. It says that right there in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6. To, why did He save? To the praise of the glory of His grace. He wants His glorious grace praised. Look at verse 12. That we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ. God did not save us for us. God saved us for Him. And Jesus Christ died for Himself. There's so many statements in the Bible. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it. Why did Jesus Christ die and give Himself for the church? That He might present it to Himself. A glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Jesus died for the church not because He felt sorry for sinners on their way to hell. Jesus died for sinners on their way to hell to make them perfectly holy so that they would be one loving bride for eternity. And are you prepared to be that loving bride? Are you already that loving bride? Are you able to sing, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise? Or do you barely use the one tongue you have? Listen, those men that wrote those songs, they knew this doctrine. They preached this doctrine. You're in Ephesians, look at 2.7. Why did He save us? That in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Look at that verse. That's why He saved. So that He can just keep pouring out riches of His grace and His kindness toward us for eternity. You will never run out in heaven because your Father that has adopted you is so rich Every day of your eternal existence, he's going to be able to show you something new on the farm. Forgive my illustration. Remember, I told you I'm not good at that. I just like to read this text and understand what it's telling me, that in the ages to come, in eternity, God saved me so that he could show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. We're joint heirs with Christ, but that's getting into... The second half of that verse. There's many more things that could be said about God wanting to make known things about Himself. I want to close with one that's in chapter 3 of Ephesians. You all know the verse, 1 Peter 1.12, where it says that the prophets that wrote about the gospel of Jesus Christ and that wrote about Jesus Christ didn't fully understand all the details that they wrote about. And then it adds this little statement, which things the angels desire to look into. Angels cannot believe that God saved us scumbags. They are... Listen, one angel took out 185,000 battle-trained Assyrian soldiers in one night. One angel. They are greater in power and might than we are. And it staggers them that God reached past them, saved none of their fallen sinful peers, the devil and his angels, reached past them down to us, creatures of clay and time. Do you know what the Bible says it takes to put you out of your life? A clothespin on your nose. It says just pinch the nostrils and away you fly. You're not anything like an angel. You can't walk through that wall. You know, we get excited about a man who has a 45-inch vertical jump. And the angels can come from the presence of God to be next to Daniel while he was a-praying. Daniel chapter 9. They're glorious. And so it says they desire to look into these things that God would save sinful men. 
because God's making a display to the angels of how great his grace actually is by bypassing them and coming down to us. And remember, the Lord Jesus Christ was not made in the nature of an angel to save any of them. He was made in the likeness of sinful flesh like us to save us. But the verse I want is right here in 3.10. If you read Revelation 4 and 5 last night in preparation, did you get to verses 11 and 12 of Revelation 5 where the angel choir burst out singing praise to the Lamb of God? Even though they couldn't sing that He had redeemed them by His blood, because He hadn't, they could sing, Worthy is the Lamb, and blessing and honor and glory and power and riches and wisdom be to that Lamb. This is the text, 3.10. Why did God save us? Verse 9 says, but that Paul wrote, verse 8, the last, the last, I'm sorry, I gotta get, I gotta show you the sense. Look at the last clause of verse 8, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. These are the riches of His glory from Romans 9.23. That I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ to the intent. This is why He did it. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. The sense of those words that I have read to you distinctly is this. The way that God is treating the church by what He does toward the church, by what He has done to save the church, He did it to the intent that the principalities and powers in heavenly places, the angelic host would see the wisdom of God in saving a lower race of beings than they are. Which things the angels desire to look into. That's what Ephesians 3.10 is talking about. When it says, to the intent, that's God's purpose, the principalities and powers in heavenly places are the angels. Principalities and powers are ranks and dominions of the angelic host. Might be known, they might learn something by God's treatment of the church. By the church is a passive construction here about the church the manifold wisdom of God. It, it's mind-blowing in, in heaven for the angels to see their fallen comrades bypassed and reserved to judgment and sinful men saved. All glory to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is called the unsearchable riches of Christ. And if you're truly born again, 1 Corinthians one twenty four tells us that when we hear this gospel, we agree and we believe that is the power and wisdom of God. Amen. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.